Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Empowered Birth Podcast. I'm so excited to share this episode with you today. But first, I want to bring you a little life update. I don't do these very often, so I thought I would maybe give you a little peek into what our life is like. Right now, we have been so enjoying summer. We just got back from a trip from Minnesota. We loved going to the zoo and interacting with the dolphins they have there. It was so special. We're taking a little break from homeschooling and it's been nice, but I'm really excited to get back into a routine. A mom of littles, if you're out there, you know that routine is everything. So I'm going to start getting back into some math and reading and I'm excited about that. Another thing, if you haven't followed me on Instagram yet, you definitely should because you would see that we got chickens. (laughs) And I'm so happy. I joke that chickens are the best babysitter I've ever paid for because my kids are out there with them all the time and they are so busy and we love it. My garden is growing. I just love being outside. It's been so wonderful and beautiful. Also, my creative energy has needed a little bit more of an outlet So I started a little Etsy shop designing shirts for the homesteading, homeschooling, home birthing, home loving mama. So you can check that out. I'll put my little Etsy link in the show notes below. Today's episode, I'm really excited to share with you today. I have Angie Hawk on. She shares her story about her experience with being put on trial as a midwife in Nebraska. She went through three long years of waiting for this trial to happen, and in this story, she shares of times she saw God work in amazing ways. She goes into how she found her amazing lawyers and what she hopes to see change in Nebraska because of her experience. So Angie, she is also known as the Nebraska birth keeper, and she has been invested in the birth world for 19 years. She served in traditional midwifery and holistic wellness since 2017, and since then, she's faced repeated counts of government overreach, including a three-and-a-half-year-long legal battle, which is what we're talking about today. And this is on the state of, of Nebraska, where I'm from as well. So this is a very personal story for me as well. Angie has a passion for human and parental rights and autonomy and serves as a supporter and advocate for families who choose to go their own path and stand on their rights in healthcare and birth. So I'm so excited to introduce you to her today. This is an amazing episode. But before we get into the show, I want to thank everyone for leaving a review and rating. And if you haven't yet, would you go do that? It really helps this podcast grow and reach more people. And it helps me keep this podcast going. So thank you so much. Today, I want to read you a review from BBIBB22. She says, I'm 36 weeks pregnant. And though I feel like I've overprepared to tackle an unmedicated birth, this podcast has truly empowered me to know I can actually do it. Most people think I'm crazy to labor at home as long as possible and stay active like I'm training for a marathon, but I want the best experience possible for myself and baby. While I know real complications come up, I want to know I've done everything possible to help give myself the best experience, mind over matter. This has been such an encouraging podcast and has truly been a friend. Thank you. Thank you, BBIBB22. Seriously, I loved that 
review. You are onto something. You've prepared. You're ready. I just pray a little blessing over you as you're going into labor and birth. This is so amazing. Good luck to you. Now, let's get into the show. Welcome to the Empowered Birth Podcast. I'm Alan McLean, registered nurse, home birth doula, and former feminist. My mission is to guide you into the freedom that is God's design for femininity, birth, and motherhood. There's a movement happening of powerful women uniting around finding out God's best for us. You're going to find information here that you won't find in your basic childbirth education class. You'll hear stories of women and birth professionals who are experiencing the redeeming experience that birth can be. You're going to get all the information you need to confidently navigate your way from pregnancy to postpartum and beyond. Are you ready to go on a Holy Spirit empowered adventure? Then stick around, you're exactly where you should be. Hi, Angie. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to speak with you today. We have so much to get into. So before we do, would you just give a quick intro who you are and what you do? Well, thank you so much for having me, Allie. It's an honor to be here. So as you said, I am Angie Hawk, and I provide traditional midwifery services in Nebraska and surrounding states. Yeah. And today we're going to be talking about your crazy experience. In Nebraska, like you said, that's where you're practicing. That's where I am. So you just recently went through a very crazy experience of being put on trial for a loss. And so we're going to kind of dive into that. But can you just give us a quick synopsis? Like, how did you end up here in midwifery first? And then we can go into what happened. Absolutely. So... I started in birth work, the very beginnings of it, in about 2004. I was pregnant with my first, and I started researching about different births. I'd actually grown up in an unassisted birth community where it was normal for women to have unassisted births, and women would just gather around, but then some women would have their babies in a hospital. My mom was one of those who had her babies in a hospital, so it was all kind of normal. So home births and different ways of birthing were something I grew up with, with that idea, I didn't feel drawn to home birth with my first. More of it was just most of those women were done having children. They weren't really attending other people's births. So it was kind of lack of uh, opportunity of having someone there. But I started formatting natural birth, like thinking about natural birth. And then I started developing pregnancy plans or birth plans during pregnancy. I actually then started helping other women develop those birth plans as well, (laughs) leading up to it. So basically, we would go over kind of all of their options at the hospital and kind of get the idea of what they wanted their birth to look like, and we would write it out. I wouldn't actually attend the births at that point. I started attending births in 2013, right before my fourth was born, actually. And it wasn't very long after that that I felt the call to midwifery. It was right after my fourth was born. Actually, he was born in Lincoln. I had a certified professional midwife and I thought I was doing the most natural thing. And I thought this midwife would be on my side. And it turned out that she really wasn't. (laughs) She would fight me on a lot of different things. I ended up not having that ultimate birth experience, even though I could have. 
And so I walked away thinking, you know what? Nebraska needs more options and I'm going to be one. So from then I started studying into midwifery. I was also doing doula work at the same time. And then I opened my doors for solo practice in midwifery in January of 2017. Okay. Wow. Yeah. You had a long journey of birth. And I think it's kind of funny. A lot of doulas kind of start with that birth planning and then they dip their toes in the hospital and then they're like, "Mm, I don't know if this is the best and I want to be a part of a change. And so I've seen that and heard that same story, but then you ended up being a midwife in a very unfavorable state. Would you clarify that law for us? Because there's so much misconception over what is lawful and what is not. So would you just give some clarity to that for us? Absolutely. So Nebraska actually only has one home birth law, which actually isn't even a home birth law. It's pertaining to certified nurse midwives. So these are midwives that have started off in nursing school and then have went on to a midwifery school specifically tailored for nurses and particularly for hospitals. There are certified nurse midwives who do attend home births. About 9% of all home births in the U.S. are attended by nurse certified nurse midwives. But for the most part, uh, most nurse midwives do not have to have home birth experience upon graduation. Their education is specifically more towards the hospital scenario, and they are learning things They might learn things from a natural realm like homeopathy and herbs, but more of it is tailored towards prescription medication and those type of scenarios that you can do in a hospital scene along with hospital equipment. So the law in Nebraska is only pertaining to them saying that it is a felony for them to attend a home birth. So that is basically the only thing that says home birth in the laws of Nebraska. Yes, (laughs) and somehow... Now moms think, families think, professionals think that it's illegal. Just there's nothing in the law. So that means it's illegal. Or they've heard that it is illegal. Is that correct? Yes, I would say probably upwards to about 90 to 95% of Nebraskans think that home birth is illegal. And part of that is it comes from a very deep root. So first of all, we have this law where people think that the only type of midwife is a certified nurse midwife, because the most common question I get from people who are very unaware of midwifery is, oh, did you go to nursing school? (laughs) And it's like, no, I did not. (laughs) And that's not the only path to midwifery. And in fact, it's one of the fewer chosen. So there's that perception that you have to be a nurse in order to be a midwife. So we have that. And then we have Nebraska who thinks that they're only going to recognize certified nurse midwives and no other type of midwife, even though nationally that's not acceptable. There are other types of midwives, whether or not Nebraska wants to admit that or not. The last thing is this really comes from about a 125-year-old root here in Nebraska by an OB. Her name was Georgina, and I should have the last name actually here, but she was an OB actually here in Kearney, where I am from and or where I live. And she actually would go to Lincoln on a regular basis talking to senators about how dirty and reckless midwives were. And it was from that point on that the state or the government started issuing cease and desist on midwives and scaring them out of practice. And so we've had this misconception for over 100 years 
of what a midwife is and how they shouldn't be allowed to practice here. And so it's really about digging up that old roots that has carried on throughout the generations. Yeah, a lot of it is miseducation and misunderstanding of the law. And then can you talk to a little bit about the attorney general in the 90s and what happened with how he interpreted the law? Because I think that's really important for people to understand. Yes. So Don Stenberg interpreted the certified nurse midwifery law in 1993, uh, stating that pretty much that anyone that attended a home birth was practicing obstetrics and therefore could be charged with practicing medicine without a license. There are several flaws in this interpretation, one of which is he was taking examples from other states in which those states actually have laws stating that midwifery is the practice of medicine. Those states actually have those laws. Our state does not. So therefore, you can't take what another state has done that has totally different law work when it come around midwifery and then try to apply it to Nebraska. So that's one fault. Another fault is he even said if a dad was catching his baby in a non-emergency scenario that he was practicing obstetrics so and therefore could be charged with the practice of medicine. The other uh, flaw that we have is birth is not a medical event. In most cases, natural, biological, physiological birth is not a medical event. It is not the practice of medicine. You know, and trying to lump birth into obstetrics, when obstetrics is really geared more for your, if you think if you're OB, you're high risk. You know, the things that do need medical attention, there is that separation, whether or not we realize it or not, there is that separation between your physiology and your biological birth processes and your high risk when we have other things that are actually going on affecting the pregnancy, apart from the pregnancy and the birth itself. The other last flaw of his interpretation is he admitted in the last paragraph that this could be challenged, <laughs> that he was not sure that this was accurate, <laughs> that what, what he was saying was actually accurate, and it wasn't, and that it could be challenged. But the, the problem is, is the one of the few of us who do challenge it get this the rest of this interpretation thrown in our faces when it's like the person who did the interpreting actually did say that this might not be the correct interpretation at all. So those are kind of the, the basics of the flaws that we're dealing with when it comes to that interpretation. But we've taken that interpretation and we've actually kind of made it law without legally making it a law. We've used it to prosecute midwives. We used it to harass families. And really when none of that should be ever done because an interpretation has nothing to do with the law. He, it's all about an opinion on that piece. Yeah, that is so important to realize that it is one person's opinion on the law. And I think that gives a lot of power back to families for their right to choose. So that thank you for clarifying that. And we'll get back into the importance of that kind of at the end when we can, we're going to talk about kind of the things that families can do to help support and help make change. Because ultimately, when we can grow and change and laws develop, that is going to be what's best for people. Policies matter because people matter. And so this is a very important thing that we're talking about, just freedom for, for families to choose what is their constitutional right to choose. So 
But before we get into that, would you tell us kind of your experience? How did you get to the point of being charged? What were you charged with? And what was the first three and a half years kind of in between the charge and the trial like for you? All right. So in June 2019, uh, we had lost a precious baby in a breach birth at home. She flipped during labor. The parents knew their options. They chose to stay home. It was a complicated presentation of the head that actually was an issue. And we transported as appropriate, we called 911, transported as appropriate. And she ended up dying two days later in the hospital. And this is devastating for all of us as we know as birth workers that the gate to life and death is very, very thin sometimes and that uh, there are things that happen that are out of our control. And this was one of those, but it's still very hard to accept. There was a lot of grieving, but we weren't able to really grieve appropriately before Nebraska, the state of Nebraska stepped in and started causing problems. Uh, with that. And the OB who accepted the transfer started causing problems with that. So it was a couple days later that my house was uh, searched. They came with a search warrant. And it was a few days after that, that they decided to charge me with a child neglect resulting in death. And, and can then, you speak on who they is? So the state of Nebraska as a whole, but specifically Douglas County, where the death occurred. So it so, wasn't the family that pressed no. charges. The family was not interested in pressing charges. The family advocated for me not to be charged. Actually, they understood the risks. They understood that birth doesn't happen perfectly every time. And even though they were devastated of the loss, they knew that I did everything in my power that I could do and I did everything appropriately. And it was one of those unfortunate things that was out of our control. Yeah. So yeah, when I say they, I'm talking about the state of Nebraska, specifically Douglas County. Yeah, the heartbreaking event. I mean, it's every parent's worst nightmare. And it's every birth worker's worst nightmare. And we just, the fact that the charges were pressed, and you weren't able to grieve and the parents were able to grieve in community. And it was just so awful the way that things happened. Um, And then I ended up getting dragged out three and a half years. Can you speak to why it took so long from the time you were charged? And you actually spent a little time in jail, if you want to speak on that and that process. But there was a long process between that happening and the actual trial. Can you speak on why that was exactly? Yes. I can. I was. Once I was charged, uh, they were going to arrest me. My lawyer advocated for me to surrender the plan. So I had a nine month old who was exclusively breastfeeding at the time. The plan was, well, my lawyer came up with a plan that I could surrender at 6am in the morning, have my arraignment by noon, and then get out and by the time the evening came around. Uh, so my baby wouldn't have to be without me for more than 12 hours. Douglas County was not compliant. They said that I needed to spend at least one night in jail, even though I was not proven guilty by anything. It was just a charge, but they were adamant that that was not going to happen. And unfortunately, they pulled a fast one. They put out the charge and negotiated the surrender for July 3rd of 2019. So then 
The next day would be the 4th of July. There's not arraignments happening, obviously. So then it would be the next day. I ended up spending three nights in jail because they actually, I was the one of the first ones, I was the second one of my group to get arraigned. And they delayed my bail by 13 hours before setting me free, which everybody that went after me actually was already out on bail. So I watched all these people who actually went before the judge after me get out hours, like literally six hours before I was able to be released. And It ended up being three nights in jail in Douglas County. However, you know, the beauty of that was since I was exclusively breastfeeding, my lawyer really advocated to the captain of the jail to have me bring in a breast pump. And the captain always wanted to do a lactation program, but because their instruction was just to tell the mom to hand express or, you know, shower express. And that was it. And if you got mastitis, you got mastitis. Like, so the captain realized that that was a problem. So she wanted to pilot a program, but she needed the right woman. in order to do this. So my lawyer guaranteed her I was the right one for this Yes, job. you were. And, wow. Uh, so I went out. They said I couldn't bring in an electric one. It had to be a manual, all plastic parts. So I went out and bought a uh, manual, plastic, complete plastic breast pump. And I did have to fight my way to get it into jail because some of the police were aware of what was all going on. They're like, no, you, I'm like, no, I actually got this cleared through the captain. And then I, I was able to bring it in. So the captain actually came to me personally about an hour after I was through booking and everything. She came to me personally and she told me her story and the heart for the women who are lactating and it was hilarious because I laughed because she said, your lawyer guaranteed me you were the right person for the job. So don't screw it up for everyone behind you. Oh my goodness. But with that, she's like, okay, we can't, they consider milk, breast milk, a biohazard. So she's like, you can't tell anyone you have this breast pump. We're going to give you a cell to yourself. So you can pump as you need, but then you can go out in the main commons area with all the other inmates um, and socialize and make phone calls and things like that. So I was able to bring my breast pump in. I had a cell to myself and uh, I was able to to keep pumping through that process, even though it was a pump and dump. There was no opportunity to save that. It worked out very, very well, and I'm very grateful to the captain who who really had the heart to allow that so that I could do that and then pilot the way, hopefully, for women behind me. I hope they took that and realized how well that worked, and they were able to offer that opportunity to other women who are maybe lactating. That is amazing and so beautiful. And I just, what a miracle, what a blessing that from tragedy, from trauma, like some good, the Lord always redeems things. And I see Mm -hmm. that in your story so much. And so that is just like a first little glimpse of how good God is despite the tragedy. So I love that. And I really do hope that it changes for a lot of women who are having to go to jail and are nursing because it really does matter. Breastfeeding is so beneficial for both mom and baby. So I love that the captain is piloting that or did that with you. And oh, you were the perfect person for that program for (laughs) sure. So in this three years, did you have a legal team? How did that come to be? Who was at trial with you? Can you speak on that? 
Absolutely. So my legal team, all of them that came to trial were not with me the whole three and a half years. So basically only Stu was with me the whole three years. I hired him and Stu Dornan and Kirk Gotch from the beginning. And that was actually before I was even charged because I knew uh, the way state of Nebraska was acting and the way the medical establishment was acting that something was going to happen. So I had actually prepared myself. And so I had hired them beforehand and they stayed with me. Kirk Gotch stayed with me actually until about two months before my trial. And he had done kind of everything that he was going to do because he was the one who really handled my expert witness that I had there and they handled the report and things. So that's when he left and we brought on Hermine Hayes Klein, who was actually at the trial with me. And then about a week before that, uh, Keith Dornan came on as well. So yeah, basically, that's kind of how that went down. It was, it was three and a half years, there were many delays, and for many reasons, you know, some of which uh, COVID was a big factor in that. And then there were other holdups with the prosecution side. It took about eight months for us to get all the discovery that the prosecution had planned to use. Yeah, everything moves slow in the legal system. So I wasn't in any, you want to have this done so that way you can move on and heal. But at the same time, about uh, three months after the tragedy, I actually became pregnant with our sixth child. And so I wasn't in any hurry to really get the trial done, particularly during pregnancy, even though I was formatting how I would give birth in jail. <laughs> so my I did gosh. have a plan <laughs> so, because I was in the back of my mind if uh, trial because trial was actually supposed to happen while I was pregnant. Our first dates were set during that time. So I was formatting what ifs for that and having a backup plan of after backup plan. But then once I gave birth and then nursing, I wasn't in any, any hurry to face trial because I wanted our six to have basically just a, a normal breastfeeding journey as much as possible. No, I didn't necessarily want it a part of my life, but it's like, well, just being, I knew it was going to be a week long process. I really didn't want to be away from my newborn baby for a week. It all worked out. The delay after delay for whatever reasons, for various reasons, all worked out to the the time it was supposed to be. Yeah. I can't imagine the, the hardness of that going through with children and your family and the impact that it had. Um, you really gave up a lot. And you do like for your clients, you you put your whole life on the line. And that is, I don't think everybody realizes how difficult that is when you take up the call of midwifery to be with women. That's all that it is. And the fact that the state can come after us, it really does feel like a witch hunt. And that's just, it's heartbreaking that you had to go through that. Would you talk about the charge? I know that was different than what a lot of midwives are charged with. Can you talk about maybe why they went that direction and what a lot of midwives are faced with if they do choose to practice traditional midwifery? Right. So it is a little different. Most midwives are not criminally charged and Usually their charges consist of practicing medicine without a license, impersonating a professional, along those lines. 
this was unique for sure. And, you know, I can't speak on the state's behalf as to why, but for those that are familiar with me, I do have a private membership association. That's how I run my midwifery business. And basically it's based on our constitutional rights, specifically the first and the 14th amendment, claiming our right to associate. There are many people who say that this doesn't apply to, you know, more medical scenarios, um, that it's failed in the past. There's a lot of uh, pointing the finger. However, I can say a PMA that has been written correctly has actually never been broken in a court of law. You know, they're a man-made system and anything man-made is not fallible or is fallible. So there's always errors in the system. However, with a PMA, the ways it can be voided is you can't trump somebody else's constitutional rights. So if uh, that's what keeps people from formatting PMAs to hurt other people, like you can't format a PMA intentionally wanting to hurt other people or damage property. That's a good way to void a PMA because that's trumping else's somebody's constitutional rights. So in this case, this charge with the child neglect resulting in death was trying to point the finger saying, I willfully hurt this child by attending this birth, that I set out to willfully hurt this child by depriving her of oxygen while she was in utero, by the way. So that was what they tried to do in order to void my PMA, at least from my perspective. Like I said, I can't speak for them of why they wanted to go that route, except that's the only logical scenario I can think of because they did have my PMA articles of association before they charged me. And being, if they were thorough, they would have read them. Uh, they're not that long. <laughs> so, and they're pretty easy to understand with anyone with a legal background. So that's maybe why that charge was why they brought that charge the way they did. And that's why I formatted the PMA is I knew the PMA wasn't going to make me invincible, but it was going to make it difficult for the state to come after me. And that's exactly what it did. That's a very difficult charge to prove, obviously one that they failed at. So it did its job as far as I'm concerned. However, there's lots of people that might point holes in that theory and they can do with that what they want. But at least from my perspective, that's the way I see it. Yeah. Wow. That was very wise, I would say. And what were some of your thoughts going through your head during this trial? I watched the whole thing and I was so fascinated by the whole process, but your lawyers Oh my goodness, there was so many times where I feel like the ball dropped, like the prosecution just like totally failed. They they did not understand birth at all. And it was almost embarrassing to watch for them. And but your defense team was amazing. So did they have previous experience with helping midwives or how did they know about birth? Because they talked from informed consent. And I mean, that was a big one. Your expert witness was fantastic. Like, how did you find her? I have so many questions about this. <laughs> oh, so um, Stu actually had not been in trial for a midwifery case before, but he had worked with a previous midwife who actually never saw trial here in the state of Nebraska. So somewhat familiar. Hermine Hayes-Klein actually was the one who really brought us up, which is why I hired her. She actually defends midwifery on an international level, wow. has tons of experience, very knowledgeable about the laws and about informed consents and informed refusals. And she really uh, stepped up our team 
when it came to that. Now, Keith actually had just graduated law school earlier, even though he's had a lot of law experience just working in his father's firm, but he hasn't had any children. (laughs) So, you know, not really, Burke wasn't really on his radar necessarily, but But yet at the same time, they all did amazing with that. And they really brought the A game. The expert witness actually was one that was midwife friend of mine had used to help her out when it came to uh, pathology, interpreting the autopsy and the medical reports and all of that. She really is great at combing through that. She's actually one of the top best pathologist in the nation, to my knowledge. And she actually is on the verge of retirement, which I'm so sad about. So, but uh, yeah, we were able to still have her come and she did amazing and combing through basically everything. She just combed through everything and uh, really gave a great assessment. With the prosecution, there was a lot of times I was wondering who they were working for because it seemed like they were proving my point. Yes. Because I thought they were going to come out the perspective that I had misrepresented myself to the family, but they kept proving over and over how, you know, all these forms, they kept bringing out all these forms of that say exactly who I am, exactly what I do. And I'm like, aren't you supposed to prove, try to prove that I misrepresent that? misrepresent myself oh I didn't that's right so you can't prove that (laughs) yes yes it was like a bundle of confusion on their side and I was just I I took note because I watched the whole thing it's on a highlight on my Instagram I have two things because I just like watched the whole thing and made notes for people who couldn't watch it because I think this trial was so important and could really help change Nebraska and the United States. I I mean, I I don't see an end to what God can do through this trial at all. Like, so if you need a recap of that, go check that out. But I loved how many times I had to write down the prosecution say, I don't know how to ask a good question about this, or I don't think I made my point clear or some something to that regard of like, I just can't even formulate a question right now. And she would verbalize that out loud. And so that it made you and your team look way more fantastic than you already looked. <laughs> but yeah, there were so many highlights, like I said, in this trial. Is there one that sticks out to you that was like, wow, that... I'm so glad that was proven. I mean, your expert witness talking about brain death, that was amazing. Or like the newborn's capability of being without oxygen is a lot larger than somebody who is, you know, our age. And so how that mechanism is built in, that's one that kind of sticks out to me. Do you want to speak on that a little bit? Because I think again, one of the biggest, scariest things for parents who are choosing home birth is, well, what if the baby's cord is wrapped around their neck? Or what if, you know, my baby goes without oxygen? Is a resuscitation? And how does that all work? So I think this is a very important piece of the trial that came out. And I was so glad she expanded on this because that first witness, expert witness from UNMC said brain death happens in five minutes. That's it. And she disputed that. And I was very thankful she was able to speak on that. But would you kind of recap and talk on that a little bit? Absolutely. So when it comes to our oxygen saturation level, you and I and babies who have been outside breathing actually oxygenated air 
after 15 minutes should run uh, O2 stat at least at 90 to 100, more like 95 to 100 is optimal. So, but babies inside utero actually don't run an oxygen saturation rate that high. Theirs are more like, now you're going to test me. I think it's more like 30%. So really when it comes to their need for oxygen, it's a lot less. So if you have a baby, a healthy baby in labor that for some reason gets caught off from their oxygen supply in utero or in the birth process, really they can sustain without that for up to 30 minutes if they're healthy going into it. Now you have those ones that something might not be optimal. If they were already in distress beforehand, you've got to account that that time might be cut a little shorter. But really, babies were born to, born to, or made to survive the birth process. And they were born to live. Like they were built to survive the process. Um, and that's one of the mechanisms that is there and in place for that, because sometimes things happen in, in the birth or you know, as they're coming out, if a cord gets kinked or whatever, they can really survive without for a while, for a lot longer than what we think. Not forever, obviously, you know, up to 30 minutes. That's not that long, really. But, and that's, like I said, for a healthy, healthy baby. So we look at that a little bit uh, differently. But also, like when I talk, when people say about the cord around the neck, you know, and I say, you know, really, it's a necklace, not a noose. So <laughs> it is the way I talk about it. And actually a cord around a neck can be a survival mechanism in and of itself. It didn't necessarily apply in this case here, but sometimes babies, you know, I feel like the cord might be wrapped around the neck. Like in my fifth birth, my son was not engaged in the birth canal before my waters released. And he had an extensively long cord that happened to be around his neck three times. If it hadn't been, we could have been dealing with a cord prolapse situation. But we weren't because it was around his neck and it was perfectly safe. (laughs) And what I always bring back to families too is babies aren't reliant of breathing down their trachea. They're breathing to the cord. Yes, they make breath movements in utero, but they're not reliant on those breath movements through the trachea because they're in water. They're relying on oxygen through their cord. And they're like, oh yeah, you can't, you can't really... Yeah, if the trachea is getting compressed, it's really not going to matter in the birth process as long as that cord isn't getting compressed beyond the ability to provide suitable oxygen and nutrients in a time frame. So, yeah, it's amazing. And that education really can help bring peace to so many women who are kind of like on edge about the whole birth process and especially at home. Knowing that piece of information can be so empowering to so many women. So, thank you for speaking on that. And the same thing happened just in my most recent birth, like three and a half months ago, he had it wrapped around both of his shoulders and around his abdomen. And his labor was long and slow and just really hard because he had to come down with the placenta in order for him to come out at once. So it all happened pretty quickly once he got engaged, but it birth is protective. And like you were saying, babies were meant to survive, like those mechanisms are put in. But at the same time, we have to, going back to what you said earlier about life and death, that is a very overlapping thing a lot of times. And when you choose to birth at home, we have to have the main responsibility of of that choice. So that's sometimes a hard thing for our minds to get wrapped around. But another point in that 
trial that was so fascinating to me when she was questioning the doctor who made the call against you about informed consent. And that was extremely eye-opening. Would you talk about kind of her line of questioning and how it is apparent that a lot of times providers don't even know what informed consent is. They think they give it, but maybe not completely. Yeah, with that, there was a lot of email back and forth with the OB between the OB and the detective that I actually wasn't aware of. Basically, the OB stating that no matter because the OB realized very quickly that the family was not going to press charges against me. And so she the OB really wanted to make sure that I uh, that I was charged and prosecuted for this birth. So basically her email or to the detective was that I would get charged to make sure I would get charged no matter what which just kind of speaks volumes in and of itself when it comes to informed choice. And I personally use the word informed choice because informed consent, you still can be informed and then coerced to consent. So I use informed choice because that includes informed refusal as well. So with that, it really was an eye opener to me that she did not respect the family's autonomy to choose their own way of birthing their babies. And that you know, the OB felt like she had the responsibility and the authority to make this harder on everybody because she refused to respect the family's choices to begin with. And that is, it's so devastating. We see it all the time. It's, and it's not just a Nebraska problem. It's actually an international problem that we're, we see this, where we have doctors who really feel like that they, and they're taught this. So most of them just believe it, that they are the final authority and that they know what's best, even beyond what the patient or the family feels is best. And so, and they act, act to that. I did stand out that this OB finally admitted that she was supposed to give informed consent. But the things that they had gone about it as far as when Hermine brought forth that, well, if you tell a mom that if you're going to take a mom for a C-section, do you tell her that, you know, her fourth C-section, she has a death risk of 7%. And the OB's like, well, no, we can't talk about every risk. Like, Yeah, like, proving that your, yeah. your time giving informed consent was way more than what she even gave or she gives any of her patients. Which right. is huge. Right. And another point that stuck out to me with the OB is when she said, well, of course, I couldn't talk about everything I needed to talk about in a few minutes because I would have to get to know the family and, you know, on all that. And I'm like, but that was already done in my case. Like, I mean, granted, I did talk to the family more than a few minutes, but that seemed to be kind of a, a catch all with the prosecution is the dad, when he took the witness stand, he said he's really bad with dates and times. But then when he gave a time frame, we took it as they gospel. Stuck with it. Sure. Like, it was just mm-hmm. like, wow, it was longer. But the thing of it is, it's like, I already knew the family. This was my second birth with them. I already knew their hopes and dreams. I already knew they wanted a big family. I knew all this about them beforehand. We didn't have to discuss that. What we needed to discuss is what's going on at the, at, in the current situation and the benefits and the risk factors and the options. That's what we need to discuss right then and there, because we had already built a relationship and I knew what their, what, you know, their dreams for the future and their dreams for their family were. 
Yeah, no. And that's such an important point too, because I think a lot of moms um, who are maybe considering their choices between hospital or home, you need to know that the informed consent you think you may be getting at the hospital really is not true informed choice. I love your, your use of that because if you have informed consent, you also have the responsibility to give informed refusal. But one point that was brought up that just kind of stuck out to me was, can you have true informed consent if you are presenting yourself as a higher authority? Which in our current medical system, that is what it is. There is a hierarchy and parents come last. And that is, it became so apparent during this trial. And I just, again, encourage anybody to like, Go look at the highlights. There are highlights on this that really can change a person's mindset when it comes to, are you really getting what you think you're getting in the hospital setting? It's beautiful that you spend more time with somebody in a one-hour appointment than most OBs spend over a whole pregnancy. They're coming in five minutes. Okay, you look good and leave. They don't know the hopes and dreams. They don't know what they want, but you spend hours, you know, with them, especially during their whole pregnancy. So that's a very, very important point that I just love to bring up. Like, just because they say they're giving informed consent doesn't mean it's informed consent. So ask questions. Like, that's within your rights. So kind of turning on that, well, first off, can you speak to the verdict and kind of to wrap up that trial? Awesome. So my verdict was not guilty. My judge, uh, Timothy Burns, gave an explanation of this verdict. Now, this isn't a miracle in and of itself, because most judges, when they give a non-guilty verdict, do not explain their verdict. But I needed him to explain it. And that's partly why I chose a bench trial. So I had the option to choose a jury trial or a bench trial. A bench trial is when the judge alone gets to make the decision. Um, There were many factors in that, but um, one of which I needed a non-guilty verdict explained because I needed to know where I was going to go. And sure enough, he explained his non-guilty verdict. And so, you know, some of the catchphrases, I won't read the whole verdict for you, but some of the things, some of the things I didn't agree with how he said it. And then, but some of the things were amazing. Like for the first time in U.S. court history, we have a judge that not acknowledged that home birth is a parental constitutional right. Praise. Yes, that has been tried for 45 years and has failed. We have not got a judge to say that. Um, another thing he went into is my training. He acknowledged that I not only did yes. I not misrepresent myself, but I was trained to do what I do. That's something that judges usually won't touch, especially with a traditional midwife that doesn't hold a formal uh, certification or licensure. So those were amazing things. But the thing, as I sat with this verdict in the days after, because there were some things I'm like, yeah, I don't agree with how he said that. I really realized that my verdict is a roadmap. He was really giving me a roadmap to where he sees the weaknesses in Nebraska, where he sees that future midwives might be able to be charged, and what basically is like, and parental rights. So he really gave me a roadmap to what we need to do to shore up some things here in the state of Nebraska, so that this does not keep happening to other families and other midwives. Um, so really, it was, it's, it's a beautiful verdict now. 
<laughs> so even the parts I'm like, yeah, that's not true. I don't agree with that, but we're going to change that. So that way, and that another judge will not have a question in his mind of whether or not, you know, with the certain parts, like, um, he mentioned that even though I didn't misrepresent myself, it was more likely that I did something illegal, but I didn't do this charge. And it's like, well, I didn't do anything illegal. So that shouldn't be a judge in a question's mind. So it's like, okay, we need to shore some things up here um, with that. So basically, that's kind of the next steps of what we're working on. But yes, so with the, but the parental right piece and acknowledging that the parents have a constitutional right to choose home birth was absolutely amazing. And that's something that we can hopefully take very, very far. Yeah, that is that changes so many things for uh, families, not just in Nebraska, but throughout the United States, which is amazing. I don't think everybody realizes the impact that that can have. And we might not fully see this impact play all the way out for many years. But the fact that this happened really set a precedent for so many other trials, like you were saying, and it's so exciting. I remember like watching the verdict I was on edge and I was just we were praying so many of us were praying for that judge specifically that his eyes would be open to what is true and I fully believe that made an impact but the release in the room and oh my goodness can you just talk about what was your first thought like when he said not guilty was there there was just a sense of relief I could tell but can you speak more to that so when he started off, I wasn't so sure it was going to be a non-guilty verdict. <laughs> um, I was like, where's he going with this? Like, uh-oh, am I in trouble? <laughs> like, am I actually going to jail? But then when he said, basically, he went to the part that the state has failed to prove. And that's when I knew. I was like, okay, it's not guilty. So... And then he said, not guilty. You know, it was a sense of relief, but honestly, it wasn't for me because my work has only begun. People are like, oh, the trial must have been so hard on you. And yes. And then, but really the hard work is now because the trial, I couldn't, during the trial phase, I really couldn't do anything. I couldn't voice myself publicly. I couldn't write blogs. Well, or I wasn't supposed to, wasn't supposed to do podcasts or anything. So pretty much I was like, this irrelevant person shoved in this box and muffled. And so I knew that that was the kind of the eye of the storm in my time to like, just be. And then the time after the trial, there's a lot of aftermath, a lot of recouping. But at the same time, that's where the real work begins. Um, and it's not over. It's not over for the other midwife facing prosecution here. I'm sure they're just waiting for another opportunity to try to take another swing at me. So it's like, well, this isn't over and it doesn't solve any of our problems right now. So, but the sigh of relief was for the family because the most devastating thought in my mind is if this were a guilty verdict, we would have to appeal dragging the family through more. And I didn't want that. I never wanted the family to be a part. In fact, through the process, I really advocated to my lawyers that I did not want the family to have to be a part of this at all because they didn't want to be a part of it. They didn't want to be a part of my prosecution. They didn't want to drag this out. They wanted to heal. They wanted to heal. And it's like through this process, even though they weren't bugged uh, about this through this process until more towards trial, just the fact of having to rehash this after three and a half years and publicly, so publicly, just it tore my heart out. And I'm like, I really want them to be able to live their lives. 
you know, and to heal and to build. So that was kind of my prayer is like, oh, thank you, Lord, that this family can act. Nobody's going to bother them about this from a legal perspective ever again. Like it's this part, the legal aspect of it and the harassment from the legal system is over once and for all for them. So that was my big, huge relief. And then I, I did shed tears just think at the very end, just kind of thinking of it all and just, you know, it all led up to that moment, like that, literally that 15 seconds, like that the last three and a half years just kind of all bundled up leading up to that moment. And then it's just gone and the people are gone and the haters are, well, the haters that were in the courtroom are gone. It was just kind of like, Oh, just that like, wow. I mean, it was just very, yeah. Just letting out some emotion and the fact that you know, I can heal now and my family can heal. That's part of it is, you know, a lot of people don't realize that, yeah, it was me and it was hard for me, but it was hard for my kids, all of them. I mean, two of my kids don't remember life out. Well, and actually probably more, more like three of them don't remember life outside the trial. Avalon hasn't ever experienced life outside the trial. (laughs) My youngest and the two well, the three older ones remember, they remember when the police forced entry into the home and the things that went on there. And, you know, it's just kind of, it was, yeah, a lot to recover from and that recovering, I should say from, uh, we actually even stopped doing school altogether just to bond and heal again, except for some reading and stuff. But I, uh, we, we tried to pick up homeschooling in January and it wasn't going well. It was ending in tears for everybody. And, I actually had to come to grips that I'm like, you know what? I'm not the only one that's going through a lot. You know, they are too. And we're just going to make space for that right now. And so that's what we did. So well, I'm uh, sure your older kids had to, they were probably thinking like, how am I going to live my life without my mom? And they probably were having to kind of think through all of that, which is just awful to think about. Yeah. Well, I don't know. We tried to try to keep some of that a okay. little bit just because we didn't want them to borrow trouble. So and the reality was, is yes, I was facing up to 20 years in prison. And my oldest probably was more aware than anybody just because of her age. But uh, also is like, you know, we, we know that's a real possibility. But at the same time, we know our God is greater, mm. uh, no matter what happens. And Yeah, we just have to keep believing and trusting and enjoying the time that we did have together. So that was another reason why I was grateful for three and a half years is because the thought of not uh, having Christmas as the next 20 was like, wow, we're going to make the most out of everything now. Yeah, that's amazing. (laughs) Well, kind of to wrap up, I have a couple questions left. How would you say your faith has grown the most during this time? I mean, this is not just a real trial, but like, this is a spiritual trial too right. that you went through. So how, what lessons did you learn during this time? You know, mainly uh, so many and really a lot of the lessons have come in the aftermath of the trial, oddly enough. I mean, through the trial, healing and trusting, really sitting with sitting with God a lot. I had a lot of people also come beside me to really help me spiritually as well, mentors and things like that people like that who really helped, you know, carry me and hold up my hands when I wasn't able to hold up my hands. It was a lot of grief 
a lot of crying and there was a lot of despair that God had to just walk with me through the valley with. And then after the trial, that was a lot harder than I thought it would be um, walking through the aftermath of the trial. But the spiritual aspect of that has been so amazing as far as, you know, growth, growth in faith, but yet growth in a deeper intimacy with God and getting out kind of, uh, Trials are a great way and not actual like legal trials, but trials in general in life are a great way to get out the sludge in the bottom of your heart, so to speak, because we all got it. But we don't always know what's down there until we hit the rock bottom of that. And then we're like, oh, the bottom of my heart is really nasty. Lord, we got to do something about this. (laughs) So, you know, getting all that up and also learning to let go and forgive and wishing people the best. I mean, you know, forgiveness is a commandment and we are instructed as Christ followers to forgive. But when people come in and harass your children and there's nothing you can do about it and they're dragging you through this just because it makes forgiveness a little more difficult. So there was a lot of that that had to come up in portions and learning forgiveness is choosing to leave it behind and strive forward of what God has really called me to. And A lot of people are like, are you going to sue them? Are you going to sue them? And that's really up to God, what he wants to do with all that. But I'm not going after vengeance. I don't hold any grudges. I realized through the trial too, that they are operating from a very limited perspective of their own trauma and their own teaching. And so they're doing what they think is right, even though it's not, (laughs) but they're doing what they think is right. And so just coming at it from that perspective of just... Lord, I just pray that you walk beside them and you help heal the hurts that's in their own lives and the trauma that they're in their own lives. So that way their eyes can be open and they can be more whole in and of themselves. So that was kind of the biggest thing is coming around to say, you know what, I am praying for these people who are prosecuting me, not because I'm told to pray for my enemies, but because I really want them to walk in wholeness and to know the whole truth of God's love and the way the world works, you know, and to walk in that because they should, everybody should as much as possible and not walk from a limited perspective of their own trauma. Yeah. For our own benefit, man, that was beautiful. And I just feel that so deeply in my spirit. The only way you are able to do that is because you have the Holy spirit. Like that's right. You just cannot love your enemies without that. That's amazing. What a testimony. So from here, where do you see this going? Do you have plans that you can share with us? How do moms and families come alongside of you and help you? Or if they're in a different state, you know, kind of get to know their midwifery status and how can they stand behind these traditional midwives who really are looked very poorly on, like you were saying, just like you had a criminal charge. They see you as a criminal and that's Mm -hmm. just, it's not just Nebraska, but right. Right. Yes, this really is a a huge problem everywhere. And we like to say just U.S., but it actually is uh, melting into other parts of the world, too. So in the U.S., definitely get to know your own state laws of what they say and start advocating for all midwives. I would say not necessarily just traditional midwives. I believe all midwives are needed and necessary and provide certain things for certain families that others may not want and others do want. So advocating for all your midwives, getting to know, you know, your representative, your senator representative, your attorney general, reaching out to them, 
just putting this on the forefront. If there is prosecution amongst your midwives in your state, you know, contacting those midwives, ask how you can help. In our state, particularly, I've been telling people, you know, contact the attorney general and let him know that you want this to change and that this interpretation that with Don Stenberg back in 1993 is not what should be used today. So letting him know that and contacting your own senators, putting this on their radar. We will be working with this more. We don't have a finite plan yet that I can share, but this is getting worked on. I can say that. And when uh, it probably here, we're going to see some things this summer and this fall that are going to be rolling out. So just be attuned to that. We'll share it as many places as possible when we are rolling out as many of the birth advocate Facebook groups, my own page. And so, you know, just keeping attuned to that and then being ready to stand up when that time comes. So, but in the meantime, getting to know your senators, you don't even have to put home birth on their radar, just getting to know them. I think sometimes senators get tired of people just wanting, 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 instead of somebody reaching out and saying, hey, this is who I am. I'm in your district. I want to know I'm praying for you. Like, you know, maybe start with that and building a relationship and going that because these senators do want to have a relationship with their people as much as possible and don't always want people just pulling on them with their own needs. So building a relationship and caring for our senators. And then, you know, when we start rolling things out, talking about, hey, this is coming up. This is, you know, these are my thoughts on it. You know, we really encourage you to stand this direction or that direction. So Start doing that. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, be in prayer, be in prayer, because there's a lot of things. The thing of it is, is so many states have done it wrong when it comes to midwifery stuff and parental birthing rights. And they've actually put more, the regulations have put midwives in chains and the state doesn't protect midwifery. Regulations don't protect midwives. Licensure doesn't protect midwives or families, despite what some people believe. But there's a lot of ways to do this wrong, but there's also a lot of ways to do this right. So just be in prayer that Nebraska can get it right, because we're really working with almost a blank slate. (laughs) So with the exception of our certified nurse midwives. So we really have an opportunity here, a really great opportunity to get this, to make this what it wants, not just for midwives or a certain type of midwife, but really for Nebraska families. So good. Change is coming. I feel it. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. I think this is such a powerful time and I really hope it impacts a lot of women. Where can people find you? Where can they connect? Keep updated with what you're doing. I do have a Facebook page, Nebraska Birthkeeper. I also have a website, NebraskaBirthkeeper.com. Instagram is Nebraska Birthkeeper as well. <laughs> Just try to keep it all very similar. So that's great. You can, yeah, those are the things. I have Twitter too, but I don't even know how to use it. So don't <laughs> contact me via there because you I never hear from me. Um, no worries. <laughs> so, but you know, Instagram, Facebook, or my website, either one of those is great for keeping up to date on what's going on and ways that people can get involved and help because we'll definitely be rolling that out as soon as we can. Sounds great. I will put all of those in the show notes. Thank you again for coming on and go connect with her. There's some really exciting things coming. I just know it. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, that was so amazing and empowering just listening to how Angie handled that whole situation. I'm so appreciated her coming onto the show and being open with us and sharing. I'm really excited for the change that could come. If you want to connect with her, get on board with what she's doing. She is paving the way. 
um, for women who want birth options. And that is so amazing. So make sure you connect with her. All of her links are in the show notes, man. And also I want to just give a little shout out and a reminder for those of you who are feeling anxious and for you who kind of feel like you're spiraling out of control with all of these thoughts and you just don't know why you're making the decisions you're making and it's coming from somewhere you know your mindset needs to change. Well, I wrote an ebook just for you. And this is a process that I took myself through with my first birth. And I listened to hours and hours and hours of mindset podcasts. I've read hours worth of books. And I wanted to get to this place of an empowered decision maker. And so I wrote this ebook, Finding Joy in Pregnancy and Birth, just for the woman who just feels like she's spiraling and doesn't know what decisions to make or why she wants to make them. This ebook really is going to take you through step by step how to change your mindset. And it's a workbook. So you're going to have plenty of opportunities to write down and kind of like dive deep into what is actually going on in your head. So find the Finding Joy ebook in the show notes and make sure that you use that 15% off code empowered birth to get a little discount. Thanks for tuning in today and as always stay empowered.